You remember that friend of yours, the one who who didn't believe in crypto? It's a bubble, he said. It's a bubble. Now, if that friend had been really early, really observant, that might have been as early as, say, 2011. 2011, when my guest this week was saying just that. Or it might have been 2017 when Bitcoin started the year around $1,000 a coin and closed the year closer to $15,000. It's a bubble, said your friend. And at that stage, it may not have just been your friend. You could just as easily have encountered the same thoughts on the cover of a respectable financial magazine or website. Or it might have been 2021 when it became increasingly clear that Bitcoin digital gold, if you will, might well be very valuable. But one thing it clearly wasn't was a currency. I mean, yeah, sure, Elon was enabling people to buy a Tesla with Bitcoin. But my guest this week, who was on this podcast in 2021, February to be exact, was pointing out then, as has become quite evident now, that whatever Bitcoin is, It's really not a transactional currency. It's a bubble. You may have friends like that. You may be that person. I'm not that person myself, but I do respect well-reasoned and articulated viewpoints on all sides. And my longtime friend, Jim Surowiecki, is that friend for me. Now, Jim was not a big fan of crypto when he last visited us in 2021. And Part of my interest in having him back now two years later is to give him a victory lap moment or two because FTX, because meme stocks crashing, because an extremely well-read, brilliant, intellectually curious source of financial opinion for 20 years plus, now Jim Surowiecki has often been very and very helpfully right for those who listen. And that's you and I who get to listen in this week only on Rule Breaker Investing. It's the Rule Breaker Investing Podcast with Motley Fool co-founder David Gardner. My freshman year at the University of North Carolina at Chapel Hill, there was this underaged member of our class I got to meet. And by the way, people who are underaged in college are, shall we say, quite bright. Jim Surowiecki was a fellow Moorhead Kane scholar coming down from the north to get a free ride scholarship in the south for his leadership potential. And I met and befriended Jim that year, circa 1984, and we've been friends ever since. In fact, as we started The Motley Fool in our earliest days on America Online, before the World Wide Web was a thing, There was Jim Surowiecki working right there at Full HQ for a few years, working hard on this promising new medium online. People called it later the Internet, working with me and Tom and our merry band of fools back then to figure out how to build a business online. Well, Jim has since gone on to prove that his leadership potential recognized at North Carolina would turn into real leadership Today, he wears many hats in addition to being a family man with at least one of his young children occupying his lap during our conversation this week. Jim writes regularly now for The Atlantic and Fast Company, having written in 2004 the best-selling Wisdom of Crowds book, and for The New Yorker for years today, living in New Haven, Connecticut, where he also today teaches at Yale and helps out with the Yale Review. Jim, welcome back to Rule Breaker Investing. 
Thanks for having me on, David. I'm just delighted to have you back. And as I said at the top of the intro, it was two years since you last appeared on this podcast. I am, to my slight credit, I I said we're gonna we're not gonna let three years pass before revisiting each other in this topic. And so I'm happy to say, uh, inside three years, we're back. But Jim, a lot of things have happened in the world of cryptocurrency, which, <laughs> since it's a rather large world, I would say have happened in the world at large yes. these days. And I definitely want to touch some of those, but I want to start with where things were in February of 2021. The title of that podcast was Bitcoin 2021. My good friend Aaron Bush joining you and me. Bitcoin was sky high. That week, it touched over $50,000 per Bitcoin. Just to quickly trace these back. Now, I don't follow this actively. We have listeners who know this down pat, but I'm about to take us all briefly through the stock graph of Bitcoin since February of 2021. So $50,000, as you and I talked two and a half years ago, dropped to $35,000 later that year, but was back up to $64,400 all-time high that November of 2021. You talk about volatility. Well, we'll spin it forward one year, 2022. Last year, it spent a lot of its time at or below $20,000. And as we started 2023, Bitcoin was trading right around $17,000 a Bitcoin. Today, mid-July, $29,000. So, you began writing about Bitcoin, Jim Sirwicky, in 2011. Even then, I think you said you thought it was in a bubble, but your January 21 piece you had just written for Marker two years ago said, measured as a currency, Bitcoin has failed. And you yes. probably raised some eyebrows, and you that's a good headline for a headline editor to get clicks. But Jim, what were you saying then, and do you still feel the same way today? Yeah, I mean, I, I do feel the same way. In fact, I, I think, and I, and I think in a way, the argument I was making in that piece, which is essentially that the original vision of Bitcoin, which was essentially that it was going to become a digital currency that could compete or in theory, I guess, uh, even replace uh, traditional, you know, what are now called fiat currencies, um, that, that that original vision was basically dead. Um, that the the nature of Bitcoin, um, both in terms of um, just literally technologically, that the fact that you know it could only do a certain a limited number of transactions uh, per hour, and I know all the Bitcoin evangelists will tell me that there are various ways they have been working on that problem, but um, but it remains a, a real issue. But then I think the second thing, which is um, a bigger problem, is really inherent. In the way Bitcoin itself, it's not true of all cryptocurrencies, but Bitcoin is set up, um, is just that because Bitcoin has a limited and that is to say permanently limited number of Bitcoins that will ever exist in the world, uh, it basically creates an incredible incentive for people who believe in Bitcoin to hold on to it rather than to use it. Um, because it essentially means that the you assume the value will rise over time if more people want to want want Bitcoin, and so using it to buy a pizza, which is you know the famous example, was someone used it to buy a pizza <laughs> way many many years ago, and I can't remember how how much he would have now if he hadn't done that. It was the most expensive pizza purchase probably in the history of the world. Um, 
And so I, I do think that. So, you know, the argument that I was making was that, uh, which I think is now a fairly familiar one, is that Bitcoin really was now functioning more like uh, digital gold um, and that it was really serving more as a kind of, to the extent that it had any value as a currency, it was really more as a store of value. Um, it was really an asset rather than a, a currency, which you basically want people to be using. Um, and and that argument, I think, is essentially correct. And, and you know, you will still hear people trying to make an argument that Bitcoin will someday be a real currency. But I feel like that's kind of um, faded away. And Jim, would you say the same thing of any other cryptocurrency at this point? I mean, my assumption is that Bitcoin being the brand leader and the top dog over history would be the one that has the best shot of all currencies to be a so-called future fiat currency. Do you see anything else emerging in the ether or do you think this is just not a thing? Ether is the um, actually is the only other one that I think has simultaneously the brand name and then structurally could also actually in some ways probably work better as a currency because it doesn't have that limited number, permanent number. Um, Ethereum? Permanent, yeah, set on it basically. Um, but, uh, and, and you know, Ethereum is used now um, within uh, sort of the crypto ecosystem to fund certain kinds of projects and the like. But, but I don't think there's any real evidence that Ethereum is being used as a currency in day-to-day -day transactions. And, and, and one thing that's important to note is people will sometimes point to, um, you know, the volume of transactions in different cryptocurrencies, Bitcoin being the most obvious. But obviously what we're interested in is if, if you want it to be a currency. We're not interested in uh, how many trades are made in that. We're interested in how many times it is used to actually buy goods and services. And, um, and, and that number has remained very low over time. Um, you know, the one thing it is still used to buy is drugs and other illicit uh, to participate in other illicit transactions. And it definitely does still have some value um, there. But I think even there, it has um, paradoxically become uh, somewhat less valuable as people have realized that it's not as um, even though it's putatively anonymous, it's actually not as it's in some ways more traceable than certain kinds of, you know, dollar transactions. Huh. Um, and so I think that's that's it. So, uh, you know, I basically view these cryptocurrencies as uh, very speculative assets. Um, and and I think that that's the way they're essentially used in the, you know, kind of the world at large. Jim, uh, you pointed out last time we talked two years ago on this topic that Bitcoin over the previous decade had been the best performing asset class. Uh, and but also, and I quote, almost completely uncorrelated with most other assets. Yeah. Now I'm wondering in the couple of years since then, seeing sort of the market bounce back this year, like I'm talking about the overall stock market here. Yeah. And uh, and then Bitcoin bouncing back, kind of looking like it's correlated with the movements yes. of the market. Do you think that that's a change? Yeah, I think that's a great question. I think it's actually. One of the reasons why, when I look at crypto, I, let me let me back up a second. the The question I have always had about crypto is why would I buy crypto versus 
buying an index fund or a rule break, uh, a, the rule breaker portfolio or whatever. Like, why would I do it? What is it that it gives me? So the argument, um, uh, you know, and, and I'm not obviously the kind of person that's concerned about the government, I don't know, whatever, taking my money or whatever the things are that conspiratorial minded people worry about. Um, and and so the one plausible argument um, that you had in the in the 2010s was that Bitcoin was uncorrelated, right? That it was it gave you it wasn't even really a hedge exactly, but it, it essentially diversified your portfolio. Um, but yeah, you're right. I mean, over the last two years, uh, and it was probably even happening around the time we we were talking. Um, in fact, I think you could go back to 2020 uh, when you saw you know you had this the stim the stimmies the stimulus payments that went to younger people who probably didn't need them and so spent them on either meme stocks or cryptocurrency and and the like um what you've really seen over the last two or three years is to my mind a very tight correlation between um uh bitcoin and cryptocurrencies more generally and then what's happening not just in the stock market but more specifically in the nasdaq and so I think when you look at crypto over the last couple of years, uh, what it actually looks like is just a tech stock with higher beta than the NASDAQ does, basically. And, and you know, the moves up and down just tend to be to be bigger. Um, although, I guess in 2023, not as big as a lot of the NASDAQ stocks have been. Um, and, and that, again, to me, raises the question of why. Why, why do I want to buy a an asset whose value depends entirely on the opinion, okay, maybe not entirely, but almost entirely on sentiment, um, rather than, you know, a stock that has actual cash flow that's going to drive valuation in the long run. Um, and my answer, of course, is I don't really think there is a good reason to do it. Mm. Um, let me add one other point about this, which I think is, is important, which is the other argument for Bitcoin historically was... Um, that it was a hedge against inflation. And so, you know, in theory, as inflation rose, the value of Bitcoin should rise as well. But we didn't see that, actually. In fact, what we saw was as inflation rose in 2021 and, and into 2022, um, the value of Bitcoin cratered. Um, and as interest rates rose, the value, the, along with, with stocks. Um, and so that, again, just made me think like, well, what? So there's no, it's not actually even hedging in the way that you might think gold would or something. Really good points. Um, and we're talking about the stock market a little bit and why buy this versus that. And so let's broaden this because something else has become popular in the last couple of years. And I'm thinking of so called meme stocks yes. As, yes. as we talk now. And this was already happening a little bit as we got into the start of 2021, but yeah. it's really become much more of a thing now. So um, I want to talk about two stocks, both of which we talked about two years ago. So you'll r recognize these, even if you're not spending a lot of time rolling up your sleeves doing individual stock research. And one of them is certainly MicroStrategy. Uh, Michael right. Saylor, the CEO of the company, who decided to take his sort of mobile software consulting company in an unusual direction when he began converting the company's assets from cash into Bitcoin, and then even went so far as to start raising money on the public markets simply to buy more Bitcoin. Now, this is a rule breaker stock of mine, one that I've bought and held for a long period of time because I liked the story of MicroStrategy pre-Bitcoin, and MicroStrategy for about 10 years bounced 
between $100 a share and $200 a share from 2010 to 2020. In 2021, ticker symbol MSTR briefly skyrocketed from below 200 to over $1,200 a share. It was back to 150 by the start of this year, 2023. I will note it's back to nearly 450 seven months later. Now, I'm not saying this is a straight-up one-to-one proxy for Bitcoin, but if you look across the world of the entire stock market, I'm not sure there's any public company that is more correlated to Bitcoin itself. Uh, the market cap, by the way, $5.9 billion for the stock today. They own about $4.2 billion of Bitcoin. Is that true? I didn't realize that. So, they that much. And, really? and part of the debate we were having, it wasn't really a debate, but the conversation with Aaron was, you know, why buy MicroStrategy? Why not just buy Bitcoin? You got us a few minutes ago into the why own any of these things. Like, what are we trying yeah. to do with our money? Do you have any additional thoughts about MicroStrategy? We're not even going to, going to FTX yet. Do you have any additional thoughts about MicroStrategy vis-a-vis Bitcoin? Uh, <laughs> I, I, I have MicroStrategy is the kind of stock that I look at and just have no idea what to do with, basically. Um, uh, because Sailor Strategy seems, uh, you know, very eccentric to me. Um, and, you know, it's funny if you look on like Yahoo Finance, um, it has MicroStrategy's uh, EPS as negative $84 a share. Wow, so, it's earnings like, per share. Okay. So, so I have no idea what, what 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 its actual earnings per share are. Right. But um so uh so you know I look at that and I'm like my 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 concern with um I'm a very risk averse investor. Much much more risk averse than I than I think is probably good good for me. And and my uh concern when I look at Bitcoin or uh, meme stocks generally and or or micro strategy specifically is um, that I just don't see what stops the stock from falling once it starts um, because uh, because you know the valuation of Bitcoin essentially depends like I said on public sentiment. Uh, insofar as MicroStrategy has to some degree hitched its business to Bitcoin's wagon, uh, I have the same kinds of of anxieties about it. Um, but I do think that in some paradoxical way, I, I guess I could see the logic of actually buying a stock in a real public company rather than in, in Bitcoin, especially because MicroStrategy does have some business um, underneath it. Uh, but, you know, that ride from I actually... I didn't realize it went as high as twelve hundred. I thought it had peaked at like it was brief. Yeah. It was brief. Yeah. <laughs> but that ride from you know twelve hundred to one fifty, and then tripling is or close to tripling this year. I it just makes me feel anxious just thinking about it. Basically, so. <laughs> well, this has been uh, an ongoing, I would say, constructive criticism that you've been leveling at this situation, which is that how can these things really, especially Bitcoin, how can they really be stores of value when they're this incredibly? Volatile. Now, gold has been volatile at different points, and especially if we imagine when humanity, I can't date this, I'm not sure we all know, but whenever humanity decided officially to start saying, yeah, gold, yeah, that's, <laughs> yeah, I'll trade you that for food. Whenever yeah. that officially happened, I bet gold was a volatile asset yes. class back then, and it remains so thousands of years later, but it nevertheless does, to my mind anyway, once again confirm how right you were, Jim. 
uh, going back more than a decade, basically saying this is not a currency. This yeah. this might be a store of value, but and, and in fact, I remember Aaron saying on that podcast two years ago, and I quote: "I think that even if it has failed as a currency," said Aaron Bush. It doesn't really matter. It doesn't necessarily need to have lots of utility in order to hold lots of value. In some ways, Aaron concluded that's the point. And yeah. quote, it does remind me, Jim, and you were talking to this earlier a little bit, that in fact that it's not spent on a regular basis makes it, in some senses, a better store of value. Uh, and yeah. so, just sitting there in digital vaults, uh, being speculated on ironically makes it more valuable than it were being used. At least that's how some people seem to think about it. Well, one, I think the other thing that's true is uh, there, there is obviously to some degree, you know, thinking makes it so, right? If enough, if, if as with gold, if we collectively decide or enough people collectively decide that something is valuable and it will continue to be valuable, et cetera, at some point it, you know, becomes genuinely valuable. And and the one thing I would say, which is really obvious, is that uh, the structure of Bitcoin, this you know limited number of coins will ever exist, um, does give it the fundamentals um, that will allow it to essentially hold value over, can, can allow it to hold value over time, because you don't have to worry about uh, more Bitcoins being produced. Um, and so it does have that. Uh, and, and while I you know, and remain somewhat baffled that Bitcoin is one Bitcoin now costs thirty thousand um, dollars a coin. Uh, I am less baffled by Bitcoin than I am by the purely, utterly speculative things like you know Shiba Inu or Doge or whatever you know the multiple other, as they call them, shit coins that are out there. Basically, uh, the fact that people are bet- well, I mean, I guess people bet on those like they bet they go to the casino. Maybe it's maybe that's the best analogy in some ways. And that leads us to the one other meme stock I wanted to talk about, and this is one a lot of people know, and that's GameStop. And GameStop yeah. is a company that I was a customer of for so many years. It was a stock recommendation of mine a long time ago, back in its golden age, back when I was buying new games at GameStop, the bricks and mortar stores, and then returning it to GameStop to get value back so someone else could buy the used copy. And GameStop, as the video game industry really became mainstream, whether it was sales of hardware or sales of software, I highly esteemed GameStop. However, it too got caught up in the craze. I think most of us know this. It wasn't the only one, AMC and others. Uh, It's a little bit of um, not just meme stocks. Are meme stocks, Jim, a meme themselves for our age, and if they are, if you want to go there, would you would you put Bitcoin in there with them? And what conclusions are you starting to draw about how we're investing our money? Well, you know, I, the way I kind of think about it is that there are clearly are connections between meme stocks and crypto. Um, you know, there's there's a lot of overlap, I think, in the kinds of people that invest in them, um, uh, at least. Historically, uh, you saw, you know, the kind of the bounce in crypto, the huge bounce in crypto happened around somewhat roughly coterminous with um, the bounce in meme co- in meme stocks. Although, you know, meme stocks, it was up and down even in 20 in 2021. Uh, I think the thing that's been most interesting to me about it um, and to me, in some ways, the meme stock phenomenon has been, if not more confusing or let's say disturbing than the Bitcoin thing. It it seemed odder in a way. Um, the way I would put it is, you know, I come at investing 
And I think mainly because of the time I spent at The Fool in the mid-1990s, um, I come at it in some ways from a very traditional point of view. Uh, and that is to say that the value of a company really should reflect the discounted free cash flow of that company in the future, you know, with some real option value attached to it in terms of other possibilities. But that that's basically what you're trying to do. That what you're really trying to think about is if I own this company, literally, if I own the entire company, how much cash would I be able to get out of this company over the in the future? And then how much am I willing to pay for it, you know, in order to get a, a reasonable return on on my investment? And 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 while that sounds kind of traditional, it obviously applies to all kinds of companies and uh, as obviously the fool and rule breakers have demonstrated, you can use it to think about a whole range of companies, including ones where you know the future earnings are entirely on the come, where right now they have no earnings, whatever. And we've we've seen that with you know the tech companies that dominate today. Um, so so when you come at it from that perspective, that was the part of the meme stock frenzy that just was where it really did feel like a pure bubble where it really did feel like people were buying these stocks, not because they thought these companies were going to be really valuable in the future. There was some rhetoric around GameStop, you know, that Ryan Cohen was going to transform it. And, and obviously, even now, it's at $23 a share, which I think is, I think it's low was around what, like six or something like that before the thing took off. So, you know, there, there's, they may very well have improved certain things about their underlying business. Um, but when you looked at the valuations at the peak, uh, you know, what it really felt like, and I think that this is this is the part of it that feels symptomatic of a cultural moment. It felt like people were basically just saying value is entirely uh, value of a stock is entirely in the eye of a beholder. And if the market says it's worth X, then it is really worth X. Uh, and I just found that and still find it as someone who thinks a lot about investing and valuation, I found it just um, A, wrong, and then also just really disconcerting and um, kind of amazed that uh, people were, you know, we're very familiar with bubbles, um, but this was something different from, like this was different from a bubble where, you know, other, everyone's buying it and it makes you kind of think, okay, wait, you know what? Maybe they're seeing something I'm not, so I should just get on this train and, and, you know, maybe and and maybe they're right. Maybe Cisco really is going to be worth six hundred billion or whatever it was worth in in twenty in two thousand. This felt more like, yeah, we all kind of know it's not really going to be worth this. It's not worth this, but we are going to essentially make it worth this by collectively deciding it is. And um, that was just like it was so wild to watch. Um, and you know, I wrote about it. And the, the 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 backlash against stuff if you criticize this was incredible uh, because you know if if it is all about what we believe you don't want anyone to try to question what you believe because it can shake <laughs> the thing and you know that's all the stuff on Wall Street bets about diamond hands and you know kind of urging everyone to stay strong it was amazing to watch I mean incredible it is amazing and you're right that that feeling of well I'm going to buy this thing. I don't really know if it's worth this, anything close yeah. to this or not, but I have a near-term conviction. And by the way, it's always near-term. Can I give you one other example? I mean, the, the, the stock that I was really, that to me was the kind of extreme version of this was Bed Bath & Beyond, right? Where 
especially toward the end, right? So Bed Bath & Beyond was one of these meme stocks and it it saw similar rises and falls. And, um, and that was a stock where for a short period of time, people were convinced that again, Ryan Cohen, who's this kind of the... The, the sort of secret wizard behind these these was uh, behind these stocks. That Ryan Cohen was going to transform Bed Bath and Beyond, and he was going to spin out the baby business, which people were saying was worth you know huge sums of money, billions of dollars. Uh, but you know, if you went to a Bed Bath and Beyond store just to do that old Peter Lynch thing, like if you went to a Bed Bath and Beyond store, you just realize like there's nothing here. This is chaos. They don't know what they're you know. Basically, this is a retailer that is. No, has no longer has a real reason to exist and is just not doing any of the things you need a retailer to do. Um, and then if you looked at its balance sheet and its debts, it just seemed clear, okay, it's, but it, that it was doomed essentially. Um, and even, but even when Ben Matthew Beyond would say things like, we're not sure, we think we're not, we're not sure we're going to be able to continue as a going concern. People would still find a reason to, to buy. And, um, that was what was amazing. You know, even as it fell down, you still had days where it would double or triple over the course of a day because it essentially became a kind of slightly more expensive version of a penny stock. And of course, you are now using the past tense, which is appropriate and was, I think, inevitable. And and I'm glad that you, you cite that because that's probably the poster child, in part because it sort of evaporated first of these yes. companies. And so yes. I think I think it's a good one to mention. I, I will say I think the prevailing sentiment is not this is valuable or I know how valuable this is. It is a near-term conviction that you can get somebody else to buy it for more. Yes. Yes. Very I, true. I really do think fundamentally that is what's there. And I guess because part of what we try to do on this podcast is turn our thoughts into advice or perspective for those listening to us. I think and Jim, I want a little bit more from you. I'm going to ask you a little bit more in that direction because you are somebody who's kind of stuck by his guns in the face of a lot of yeah. countervailing theories and sometimes a lot of emotion. And I think you were right. You've been right. So I, I, I want to know, we want to bottle a little bit more of that Sir Wiki magical potion of being rational and persistent and ultimately being right. And that's how I hear you, and that's how I see you, Jim. I've watched you over the years, so I really respect that. But I think at least one of the early guides to not falling into this kind of speculation is, are you near-term or long-term? And it does feel as if most people who have something very speculative are largely just thinking about exiting as quickly as possible with somebody buying it from them. And that, of course, runs directly antithetical to our organization, which says stuff like, yeah, we buy and try never to sell. And and uh, yeah. it, it, it's a little bit of proof positive uh, avoidance of these kinds of things. What other dynamics? We're going to go to some other crypto topics in a section, but any other dynamics that, that you have exhibited or learned as a consequence of going contrary to lots of prevailing speculation? Well, I would actually, uh, I, I do think some of it is temperamental and I, and I do think that that's not necessarily always, my temperament I think is not always a good thing. So as I said, I'm kind of risk averse. And I do think, so I think while that helps me in, in avoiding getting caught up in things like this or seeing through the kind of rhetoric, um, because you know one of the other things that was very striking about the meme stock bubbles was 
that there were lots of people who, while they may have originally thought they were near-term investors, instead kept holding. So like GameStop was the classic case, right? Because GameStop would get to like, it went to 350. Did it go as high as 450? I can't remember whatever it was. And there were lots of people who did not sell. And I was, and to me, I was like, there is no way this stock is could possibly be worth 350. I mean, there's literally no way you, it could get there. Why would you not just dump it? And um, and the fact that people didn't was absolutely fascinating. So, um, so what I would say is, I think temperamentally there are aspects of my kind of risk aversion, uh, a lack of impulsiveness when it comes to investing that helps in this regard. But the downside of that is that it also has made me more cautious about investing in certain kinds of stocks, um, or even just you know getting in at 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 the bottom. I mean, the only good really good historical investment I made was um, that I got in at the bottom in uh, 2009, where I had had money that was in cash. And I basically got in, it was in 2009, basically when, you know, everything was yeah. falling apart. Yeah. I basically got to the point where I was like, well, either the entire financial system is, <laughs> is gone or it's going to come back. But I think being as risk averse can also cost you. I think it can also keep you out of stock. So the one thing I would say, I'm just going to repeat myself, but I think it's really important. I think as an investor, if you are going to buy individual stocks and not just invest in index funds or whatever, uh, I think I continue to think the best thing you should do is ask yourself, if I owned this company, if I was literally the owner of this company, um, uh, would it generate enough cash for, for in the future for me to get a reasonable return from it? And that if you start with that question, then it doesn't answer all the problems because obviously that's a very hard thing to do, forecast 20 years into the future, et cetera, et cetera. But if you start there, that at least lets you kind of think through it in a more rational and, and in some ways actually also easier to understand way. Really great point. So yes, before we buy stocks, I often say, you know, does this fit in with your best version of our future? Is this a company that's yeah. going to do good, help our kids, going to be good for the world? But yeah. Jim is saying, yeah, what if you own the entire thing, though? Pretend you own the entire thing. Are you going to make money with this based on yeah. what you're paying today? Really sound thinking. Jim, thank you for that. Now, we do want to touch on some other things besides crypto. But before we get there, I want to ask you about the decentralized ecosystem that was part, has been part of the promise of cryptocurrencies broadly. This idea that, hey, uh, DeFi, baby, we're talking about a world where we're not dependent on sovereign governments, on the man in many cases. The internet has given a lot of us agency in areas of life and commerce that we never dreamed of. And so why couldn't we become freer of the shackles of whatever country or strange, sometimes bad place we're living in or we're born in, and, and decentralize finance. What is your take now on where the world is with regard to what we'll call buzzword DeFi? Well, to me, the thing that's really fascinating, and, and it's not exactly surprising, but yeah, the promise of Bitcoin and crypto generally was that they were, you know, what what are called trustless currencies, and by that meaning, you did not need to trust anybody else in order to make the transaction, right? Because all the transactions are recorded on the blockchain; you can't mess with them, et cetera, et cetera. So um, I don't need to know who you are. I can just we can do the transaction, 
Um, there's no way for, you know, you to rip me off on it or whatever. And, uh, and more and one important consequence of that in theory was that you did not need intermediaries. So we didn't need banks. We didn't need exchanges. We didn't need any of that. You and I could just do a transaction. We didn't need to go through anybody. Um, and, and, you know, if we, if, if we're just doing the transaction, then that means the government can't pay attention to it or whatever other actors can't in, in, can't, um, can't interfere. And we don't need to worry about, do we trust the intermediary? So we don't need to worry about any of that. Uh, so that's a, you know, an interesting idea. And you can understand why it's very appealing to libertarians or people who um, are generally, or people who live, as you said, in countries with, you know, bad or corrupt governments. But I think the thing that's most striking over the last two or three years is that as crypto has become more popular, it's become much more centralized. So that many more crypto transactions now happen through centralized exchanges, Coinbase, Binance, um, the late unlamented FTX, uh, than do, you know, just on the block on the blockchain between individuals. And there are obvious reasons for that. Doing a, a Bitcoin transaction or a crypto transaction without an intermediary is kind of complicated, requires a little, not a lot, but it requires a little bit of technical knowledge. And it's not as easy. It's harder to get your currency back in, uh, get Bitcoin back into the currency that you, you know, maybe want to use or whatever. So, um, so what you've seen is this gravitation toward these centralized um, institutions. And the real irony is that those institutions are more centralized than Wall Street, not less centralized. I mean, Binance is an exchange, it's a broker, and it's sometimes, well, depending on who you believe, taking the other side of the trade that you're making. And that's very different from, you know, in the in our current financial system, you have a broker, then you have an exchange, and then you have traders who are taking the other side of your trades when you make them. Okay. Um, and so that it, the irony is that in some ways, a lot of the crypto world has actually become more centralized than the Wall Street world. It was promising to basically dis, disintermediate. Do you have any thoughts playing it forward? I mean, obviously, if these things are going to be big and global and trustworthy, they're probably going to need to be regulated. They're probably yes. going to be regulated entities. Um, so they're scaling into transparency. They're scaling into scrutiny. Um, they seem a number of them to have gotten in trouble. Um, yes. In the case of FTX, I, maybe you could just give a little bit more of your perspective on the late unlamented um, FTX. But but rather than look backwards at, at somebody who did something badly, uh, what about looking forwards and asking, what can we learn about where we are now and what prediction would you have about the financial system in 10 or 25 years? I think insofar as crypto is not going away, and I don't, I don't think it's going away, I think, I think there will remain a demand for it. I think that it is, I think the only logical outcome is that you have these big, you have bigger exchanges um, that are in fact regulated. I think you're exactly right. And I think that, you know, what my theory, I'm actually writing a piece about this right now, is that if you look at what these big crypto players have done, so Binance, FTX, um, uh, Celsius, which was this uh, kind of lender, basically a crypto lender that went out of business last year. And that sort of provoked a lot of the um, uh, a lot of the, the crypto winter, as it was called, um, or at least it got it going. Um, I think that what 
what you look at when you look at all of them, I think what they were doing was something similar to what they saw Uber and maybe Airbnb having done, which was going into regulated industries and basically just saying, you know what, we're just going to, we're just going to go ahead and do what we're doing. And then if we get popular enough or successful enough, ah, the regulators will have to make some kind of accommodation to us. Um, And, and, you know, that kind of worked for Uber and and Airbnb. I mean, you know, they obviously have different cities have had different uh, responses, but, but it kind of worked. The problem is in finance, like the regulations are a lot more serious and, it's a lot easier to get in, get thrown in jail for what you're doing. Um, and I think that that's what you're seeing now. So Celsius, the CEO of Celsius was indicted last week. Obviously, Binance and Coinbase are facing a bevy of charges. Um, and, you know, the Binance uh, uh, complaint from the SEC or, or maybe it was the CFTC, you know, had these amazing emails where like internal executives were saying things like, we're running an unregulated financial exchange. <laughs> like they kind of knew what they were doing. Uh, and then FTX being the extreme example where essentially it, you know, and we don't know entirely, but it seems pretty clear at this point that they had set up a, a way for uh, client funds, customer funds to be basically borrowed by the hedge fund that that the CEO, uh, Sam Bankman-Fried, who was the CEO of FTX, that he also was had a, a hedge fund that he that he owned, and uh, they were able to borrow it and borrow. They were able to borrow customer funds, um, and you know that's the kind of thing you can do when you're not regulated. It's not the kind of thing you can do if you are regulated. You know, they didn't really have capital requirements, so they had no capital on hand other than the customer funds, which is not capital. So yeah, so I really think if this goes forward, I would be very surprised if. Um, these exchanges are not brought under the regulatory umbrella. Let me add, let me mention one concern I have about that, which is my main concern about them bring, being brought under the regulatory umbrella is that it will create the illusion in people's minds that these assets are as safe as stocks or bonds, basically. Um, and so I just want it somehow to be clear to people like you are still, this is still basically a casino. You are still going to be gambling. It's just going to be regulated the way casinos are. Well, Jim, I want to give you a chance to to make a final statement, whatever you'd like to, on the topic of Bitcoin and cryptocurrency. When I did this a couple of years ago, you probably don't remember, but I checked the transcript. Here's what you said in so many words. You said, my final statement is that you can understand something and be right about it in some ways and still be completely wrong. That has really been my experience about Bitcoin. You said, I've been writing about it for nine years back at that point, off and on. I think it I think I would go back to 2011 and say, yeah, that was accurate, but it was completely wrong about Bitcoin as an investment. And you said a little bit more there. So that that was your reflection a couple of years ago. Whether it's a personal one or an economic or global one, what is your final statement 2023 on Bitcoin? Uh, I'll, I'll Maybe I'll make a slightly more dramatic prediction. Um, I, I don't think Bitcoin over the next 10 years will outperform the S&P 500 as an asset. Uh, I think Bitcoin will be stick around as a kind of version of digital gold. Um, what I think we'll see, or maybe in this case, it may also maybe it's just what I hope we'll see, is that um, a lot of the essentially pointless uh, cryptocurrencies and crypto coins that are out there will just 
vanish by the wayside. And basically people will no longer feel this need to use them as uh, just gambling tools. Uh, but, um, but, but that's what I think, you know, that I think would be the, the best thing for, for crypto. Um, I think, uh, and it'll also ideally might get rid of at least some of the scams and grifters that dominate this, the site. Thank you, Jim Sirwicky. Well, we're going to cover two topics on the back end of this week's podcast, both of which I find fascinating personally, and both of which I've got Jim Sirwicky here. I want to know what he thinks. And so they are respectively, um, let's call it collective and artificial intelligence. So I'm thinking about AI talking to the author of the wonderful book, Wisdom of the Crowds, thinking about collective intelligence. So let's talk about intelligence uh, next. But then we're going to go to journalism in the future. I'm talking to a world-class journalist. I have other friends who are those. I admire them deeply, the ones who do it really well and really right. And yet I'm wondering, um, part of this interview has involved you having a young child, your son on your lap, which has, by the way, been delightful. And if anybody ever wonders, can Jim Sirwicky multitask? The answer is absolutely. Jim Sirwicky can parent and appear on a on a podcast. But Jim, you know, talking to the kids who want to be journalists, I'm trying to picture the world of, let's say, 2050, one generation hence. What what does journalism look like and how might it change? So those that's where we're headed in brief. Let's start with collective and artificial intelligence. So a recent guest on my podcast, Mohan Tavakoli, who talked on this topic, was quoting the academic A.J. Agrawal, who wrote a book called Prediction Machines, among others. Don't know if you've read it, but basically Agrawal was saying, you know, what AI is really doing economically is it's reducing the cost of knowing what comes next, of predictions in a sense. So ChatGPT effectively is built on predicting one token at a time in this case, words, like if this word appears, then there's a percentage chance, high likelihood that these following words will appear. And there's some randomization going on in there too, the special sauce, but that's predicting what's next. And it's it's free. It's, it's not free to produce. It's being provided for free at present, but that's an example. But as AI continues to infiltrate various aspects of our cultural life today, we're going to see more and more, if it is smarter, if it is smarter than the knowing what comes next becomes a little bit cheaper and a little bit easier. So I'm curious your thoughts, especially in light of another way that we obtained intelligence in a surprisingly cheapening manner, Jim. You've written a lot about it, staked part of your career on it, and that is the idea that we would collectively, um, sometimes individually act, but collectively reach better conclusions as a consequence of the collective. So I'm opening the gates wide, Jim Sirwicky. I would love to hear your take on AI today and how you think about the future here. So I'm a little bit of a AI skeptic in the sense of, and, and it's actually connected to the second uh, topic we'll talk about, journalism. But I'm an AI skeptic in the sense that I think that precisely because ChatGPT is essentially predicting what word it thinks will come next or what word is most likely to come next. Um, it, it's not intelligent in the sense of kind of really like rationally thinking through what's going right. It's essentially a kind of prediction machine. And so when I read a lot of these things about how, you know, uh, uh, how it's going to be replacing humans soon and the rest, um, to me, the big problem with it in terms of just relying only on it is that precisely because it is only a prediction machine, 
it doesn't know when it's wrong. It can't recognize really when it's wrong. You have to kind of inform it as such or whatever. And it doesn't even know when it's lying, right? So we know that uh, AI has this tendency to, to confabulate or to make stuff up. Uh, the most famous example is, is the, the lawyer who filed a brief that had been written with artificial intelligence and, <laughs> and, and the AI had invented a whole series of cases uh, and and not just that, but also had invented quotes from those cases that the lawyer had included in the brief. Uh, and the, I, the AI, the fascinating thing is the AI didn't know it had done this or essentially didn't know it had done this and certainly wasn't in a position to confess it. So 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 that's why I'm a little bit of a skeptic. Having said that, um, I do think the way I and this may be my Pollyanna-ish view of the world, which we know I'm a little bit of a, a sap in that regard, but uh I do see it as a useful tool potentially going forward uh, and that you could imagine something similar to, uh, you know, kind of uh, there's some they sometimes call the future like the future is going to belong to centaurs or human machine blends, essentially. And so I can definitely imagine people using AI and, you know, I have friends who use it this way now um, as a way of quickly aggregating information of basically, you know, kind of essentially searching the web or whatever the databases that it has access to, um, providing really useful summaries. Uh, you hope that they have made stuff. But, um, and then, you know, I, I can easily imagine, I'm sure Wall Street firms are already using it uh, to make forecasts about, you know, trends and things like that. Uh, so I can definitely see a model in which you have essentially human judgment and machine judgment allied to each other. I think the big challenge going forward, uh, the big challenge in all this is that, um, you know, that there's a lot of knowledge that humans have that is kind of tacit knowledge. It's not necessarily knowledge that is easy to express or to write down. Um, and, and, and so it's, I still think, um, you know, I wrote The Wisdom of Crowds in 2000 and the book came out in 2004. And I would still say that the concept of using the collective intelligence of groups is still, I think, woefully underutilized in particularly inside organizations, um, that there's just a lot of knowledge that people have that um, that still goes untapped and that there are very simple mechanisms you can use to, to get at that knowledge. Uh, and, you know, we see it, we talk about the stock market. So the stock market has many flaws, including the existence of things like meme stocks. But collectively, you know, the market does a reasonable job of forecasting the future performance of companies. Um, and that's an incredibly difficult task. Uh, and and so, um, so I, I will be very interested, you know, what if instead of um, humans, you aggregated like, 10 different AIs and basically ask them, like, even then, I guarantee I can almost guarantee that the collective judgment of the 10 AIs would outperform the judgment of any one AI. Um, and so I think that um, and it may be that aggregating the judgment of AIs and humans is maybe, maybe that's the future you could you could rely on. Um, but I think that simple phenomenon of essentially kind of, you know averaging across rather than trying to find the one right, the one source of truth um, is really the right approach. Uh, I think that it, it'll be interesting to see, you know, the, the, the one 
complicated question we get into, not now, but say 10, 15 years down the road, is um, if we rely more and more on AI um, to generate text, to you know, produce predictions, forecasts, blah, 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 blah. Um, and then the AI is essentially learning off of that stuff. Does Is there just some kind of weird loop, basically, where essentially the AI is just listening to other AI produced, you know, things now, I, whatever, I, I'm sure there are solutions to this, but, um, but I do think that that centaur model is kind of in my head where we're probably going to end up. You know, in a lot of ways, um, chat GPT and its ilk are the ultimate present demonstration of collective intelligence in the yeah. sense that we've run I didn't do it, but OpenAI, among others, has run any number of books, articles, pieces of art, experiences, uh, cultural things, historic, all fed into a machine or the yeah. machines or the cloud. And so how do you contrast that collective with a 2004 wisdom of crowds, I would say, kind of polling human beings for just their own individual take without them even paying attention to what each other thinks necessarily and coming up with better answers. Is it the same thing? Is I don't know if it, it's, it's a great question. I, I don't know if it's exactly the same thing, but, um, but having said that, um, you know, I, I, I realize to the extent that I've used track GPT or these others, um, I've never actually asked it a question that kind of, I've never actually actually asked it to predict anything or um, asked it to kind of evaluate some situation. It's really mostly been writing stuff has been what I've been most interested in because I'm a writer. I assume that's probably why. Um, and some like knowledge stuff that I've just been interested to see, well, you know, what do you think of this text or sure. whatever it is? Um but but yeah, there is a logic to what you're saying, because, you know, the thing about uh, the wisdom of crowds is that in some ways, well, in a lot of ways, I think it works best when each individual is just trying to solve the problem. And then you aggregate the collective judgments of all the people involved. And um, and in a way, that is kind of what AI is doing. Right. No one knows. No one person who produced the text is aware that this is how it's going to be used. And yet it's this collective judgment that is now being used to produce sentences and the like. So, yeah, I mean, you know, I mean, I've always thought Wikipedia was a kind of human version of the wisdom of crowds in terms of, to some degree, not perfect, yeah. some element of it. And then you could certainly see chat GPT as a kind of machine driven version of Wikipedia, basically. So, yeah, I like that. That's a good, uh, yeah, it's a good, that's a good take. Well, let's shift to our final topic then. I'm talking to one of the best journalists I know, um, recognized for his work both uh, in print in the form of a wonderful best-selling book, but then any number of columns for any number of publications. Jim, today you're, I see you writing some for The Atlantic, Fast Company. Uh, you're tied right in with the Yale Review for personal yeah. and professional reasons. Um, so I'm talking to somebody who's made his life in journalism and has been an exemplar to the kids. So let's shift to the year 2050, or you don't have to go out that far, but how about today, next 10 years, you have a young friend, you're mentoring, and this person is passionate about journalism. What advice would you give him or her thinking forward about how the world is changing, recognizing, by the way, that nobody really understands where we're yeah. all going together. But what yeah. thoughts do you have in the nearer term and then maybe the 25 years out term? Um, 
in the near term, uh, I, and actually, I think the advice that the advice would not necessarily be that different. Um, I mean, you know, there are reasons to be very cautious about journalism, just simple economic reasons. Um, there's a, you know, a huge amount of supply, um, just in the sense of, you know, the internet has made it possible for everybody to publish and everybody yep. that takes and, you know, the, the rest of it. Um, the economics of the business are, uh, complicated because, you know, there's an argument to be made that, um, a lot of the glory days of magazines were really built on a kind of illusion on the part of advertisers. That may not be quite the right word, but, you know, there's an argument to be made that, um, that, you know, those big brand ads that, that, you know, essentially would fill the pages of, of magazines, um, that they maybe were not the most rational ad spending possible. And, you know, <laughs> but they fueled a lot of, um, they fueled a lot of the magazine business. Uh, obviously newspapers have had the problem of, of Craigslist demolishing classifieds. Um, and then, you know, nowadays it classifieds being just essentially outmoded. So, so there are a lot of real, you know, concerns basically, right. There are a lot of things that, that, that are worth, that are worth worrying about. Um, having said that, uh, the, the fascinating thing to me about journalism is that there's no evidence to me that the demand for it has dropped. Um, there's the subscriber bases for magazines like the New Yorker and the Atlantic have actually not really shrunk very much. And in fact, that's even though they're more expensive than they used to be. So one of the things magazines have done in response to the decline in ads is quite sensibly to, to amplify, um, to raise, to raise their subscription prices. Um, and, and I think there still is a, the New York times has never been more influential, right? The New York times is incredibly popular, um, in terms of its digital subscriber base, I think is now like, I don't know, 9 million, something like that. So, so, um, so I think there's still an incredible appetite for it. And, and that's a good thing. Um, people, people want it. Um, I think the job, uh, if you're in the right situation is still incredibly fun, incredibly interesting. Um, and it gives you, uh, you know, just a great opportunity to try to think hard and then to, to write well for people. Uh, I think that the three things I would say are, uh, and I think AI is a big part of this because I do think AI is going to put a dent. I think people are going to try to outsource the, some of this work or a lot of this work, depending to AI. Um, and, and, you know, there are reasons to be worried about that. I think the three things I would say are, just from my experience with ChatGPT, and maybe it'll get a lot better. I don't think it's a good writer. I think it's a fine writer, but quite ordinary. And I think readers can actually tell the difference. I think that, you know, readers will certainly happily read a BSA, but I think that, you know, they they want better stuff. So I think that the premium is going to be on good writing. Um, and by that, I mean, like, using words in interesting ways. Like it sounds banal, but that's actually really matters. I really believe that. Like thinking hard about how to write sentences, thinking hard about your leads, you know, thinking hard about having punchy endings and the like. So I think that that is it. Um, I still think there is going to be an appetite and there's still going to be room for original thinking. Um, you know, ChatGPT will occasionally come up with stuff that surprises you. You're like, oh, that's interesting. I hadn't thought about that. But, but for the most part, and this makes sense given how it's set up, you know, what it gives you is kind of, oh, yeah, okay, here's what you kind of would think. So I still think there is room for original thinking, um, for just spending more time thinking about this stuff and and trying to figure out what has not been said or what, what might be an interesting and original uh, take on this. 
Um, and then the last thing, and this is something that I don't do that much of, but which I think is probably going to become even more valuable is simply reporting, like actually literally going out and talking to people and, um, you know, spending time in the field or whatever it is, because ChatGPT is not going to be able to do that. Um, and I think that that remains, will remain a real competitive advantage. I can't believe we're talking about competitive advantage versus machines, but I basically, <laughs> but I guess we are. Um, I think that will remain a competitive advantage. And, um, and I think that that's something that, you know, readers uh, remain interested in and, and the like. So it's, I would definitely not, and I actually have students who, who I've taught at Yale who are, you know, very into journalism or thinking about this and the like. And, and I don't say um, to them, you know, don't do it, stay away from it, the like. Um, I, uh, but I just say, you know, you really, I, I think you really want to, you really need to want to do it. Um, and, uh, and then I think, you know, you really need to, to work on these skills. Cause I think these are the things that are going to differentiate, uh, you from the robots, um, and you from everybody else. Thank you very much, Jim. You know, I did ask ChatGPT this question because I figured we should hear what ChatGPT thinks yes. of journalism in 2050. Yes. And what won't be changing, according to today's version of ChatGPT, are ethics and objectivity, the fundamental principles of journalism, that there would be accuracy, fairness, objectivity, and public accountability. Yes. I've had my own questions about some of the objectivity I've witnessed from journalism yes. over the years, and that's the side that I don't like, but I certainly acknowledge the great importance of that, especially in a world that includes China, Russia, and other cultures that really are trying not, specifically not, to allow the truth out. So I, I love that one. Number There, there are four. A second okay. thing that won't be changing, investigative journalism, that deep yeah. dive, that what you said, you know, actually yeah. going out there and yeah. uh, experiencing things. Number three, storytelling. Hey, that's not going to change, right? The heart of journalism is storytelling. So despite all the technology changes, the importance of just telling a compelling human-centric story. I know that you, you lightly reference this in your five different jobs. One of them is teaching <laughs> Yale students how to write. And yeah. I think that that is timelessly important. And then yeah. finally, ChatGPT feels that the role of journalism to inform the public, to act as a check on power, that will also remain critical in 2050. So according to the AI itself, th those are some thoughts as well. And I see you mostly, like, yeah. mostly yeah. nodding your head here. Yeah. Well, I like the, I mean, those all seem fine. They, and they're sort of what I think you, it's, it's interesting and not, storytelling, I think obviously gets into these questions of style and writing and the like. Um, I do think style in this that goes beyond uh, storytelling. It actually goes really on the level of the sentence and the like. Um, I think style actually is a real differentiator. I think uh, people, you know, it's sometimes hard to talk about. I mean, it's easy to talk about if you're talking about like Joan Didion, you know, or somebody like that who's very obviously stylized. Tom Wolf. Yeah, Tom Wolf, exactly. So, you know, when you're talking about them, it's very easy to see how it differenti differentiates. But uh, you know, I'll just give you like a, a simple example um, is um, is Michael Lewis, uh, who actually is writing a book about uh, FTX. So so, you know, Michael is able to write these books about topics that, you know, people are talking about and thinking about and the like. And he has this obvious this amazing knack for being in the right place at the right time and, and you know, uh, hooking himself up with these really interesting characters. But I also think people underestimate um 
just what an adept writer he is on the level of the sentence and on the level of sort of, you know, the paragraph as well as obviously the story. Um, and that it, it, it's in some ways, I think, because his books are, are, you know, pretty easy to read. They're very enjoyable to read and you never feel like you're working. I think in a strange way, people kind of underestimate just how brilliant a writer he is. And so I think like that, that thing, that ability to write um, in, in a, in a very clear sort of sharp way with like very, in his case, quite funny sentences and the like um, is, is something that's not going away. Like people are going to want to continue to read that. And I'm just skeptical that chat GPT is, is going to be able to do that. I actually love the idea of chat GPT getting this question and saying like, well, I can't say <laughs> that I'm going to replace everyone. So let's see, how can I come up with, let me try to come up with a semi-plausible explanation for how journalism will still matter and I won't have wrecked the entire business. <laughs> Jim, let's close with the classic Motley Fool game of buy, sell, or hold. These are, of course, not stocks themselves. These are things happening in the world at large. And I'm asking you, Jim, you've played this before with us, if they were stocks, would you be buying right now, selling? Or holding, and however you answer, maybe a sentence or two as to why. Are you willing to play again? Yes, let's do it. Excellent. Here we go. Jim Surwicky, buy, sell, or hold. If it were a stock, legalize sports betting, the industry today. Are you a buyer, seller, or are you holding? Uh, I'm gonna. I would buy in the sense that I think the industry is going to continue to grow. I don't think it's shrinking at all. Uh, having said that, I think that the economics of the business. I would probably, hmm, I probably would hold on it. I think I don't, the economics of the business still remain a little opaque to me um, because they've had to spend so much money on market uh, acquisition, customer acquisition, that it's not clear to me if at some point that's going to stop and then they'll be able to, everything will just drop to the bottom line. And if that happens, then I think they're set. Um, if it doesn't, then, um, then obviously I think I would sell. You know, the advantage they have is that I think that states are going to continue to pretty tightly regulate the businesses. So you're not going to have to worry that you're going to have like seven or, well, maybe I'm wrong, but I don't think you're going to have seven or eight different online sports books um, in a lot of states. So, uh, you know, I am I am a sports better. I like it. I've always liked sports betting. I think it's, it's the best kind of betting you can do because, um, you know, your odds are better than in a casino game. Um, uh, as long as you don't do crazy parlays. Sure. Um, so I would buy the the sort of concept, but probably hold the business. Well said. Buy, sell, or hold electric cars going forward. Tough one. Very tough. Um, I got to say buy because I think we're gonna we're gonna go there. Uh, but having said that, I would only buy if you are really committed to the long-term. I actually think in the short-term, um, hybrids are going to have a kind of little renaissance here. I think hybrids have actually been underrated. Um, and um, my mom has a Prius. It's awesome. Seems like totally great. Not as expensive, not as you know easier to maintain, et cetera, et cetera. But uh, I'll tell you the one specific electric, two, two electric vehicles specifically that I am uh, high on one is Rivian, uh, which is getting just a ton of traction here in Connecticut, um, Fairfield County in particular. And then the other one weirdly is, um, the, the Hyundai Ionic, just my brother has one and 
for some strange reason, I've started to see a bunch of them here. So that's my little like Peter Lynch, like, oh, wait, maybe something's happening. So buy, sell or hold space exploration. Uh, uh, I guess I got to buy it. It feels to me like <laughs> I, I'm not really convinced that it's 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 a thing that um, is ever going to be as big as as people think it is. But it's impossible to imagine that in the next hundred years, we're not going to do a lot more space exploration. If, if the, if the question is man's space exploration, I think I would sell it. I don't really think we're going to do much on that front. All right. And last one for you. I mean, I can play this game all day long, Jim. So much fun. So thank you so much for joining us again this week. Let's go with buy, sell or hold two hour movies going forward. I mean, there's a lot we could talk about streaming, but I'm specifically thinking of this longer form storytelling that we all got used to through the first 50 plus years of our lives, those of us in our late 50s. But then I have my kids and they're like, I don't want to watch a two hour movie streaming with you, dad. That's way too long. But then we watch 12 one hour episodes of the same thing that could have been done in two hours. Mm. I'm going to say bye. Uh, and uh, the, But there's actually something specific that you said, the two-hour movie. My big problem right now is if you go to the movies, you don't get two-hour movies. You get two-hour and 40-minute movies, which is like way too long in most cases. Like Oppenheimer's three hours. Okay, maybe that's justified given the scope of the story and all this life. But, you know, I don't know. Mission Impossible, the new Mission Impossible is 240. Avatar was obviously three. So I actually would would love to see and i can imagine a renaissance of the hour 40 to two hour movie i think it's and i think actually the context in which you mentioned it is really smart one which is that i actually think there are a lot of shows out there tv shows that are you know six or eight or ten hours whatever that uh would probably have been better as two hour movies and um and I think that there is something about that length, that story form that feels, obviously we grew up watching it, but it feels to me like quite satisfying, quite organic. You know, a baseball game is two and a half hours. A soccer game is two hours. Well, a baseball game is now two and a half hours. Thank yeah. You. Soccer game is two hours. Basketball game is a little bit longer than two hours. Okay. Football is, a little, is three hours, but nonetheless, I think there's something in there. And I will say my little kid, my kids who are quite younger than your kids, um, it's funny. They love it when they get to watch a movie as opposed to just like an huh. episode. They're like, Oh, we get to watch the blah movie. And um, <laughs> it's, so that actually has been quite interesting. They just watched um, star Wars and empire strikes back for the first time. And they, you know, just stayed with it. The little one fell who fell, fell asleep a little bit, but <laughs> they were very happy. So this probably just reflects my, my hope, but I, I'll say bye. Well, that was a lot of fun. And I'm reminded here at the end of how much I enjoy Buy, Sell, or Hold, a game we played from our earliest radio days on AM radio and NPR. And I clearly need to play more often on this podcast, too, because what fun. Well, thank you again to Jim Surowiecki for freely sharing thoughts on meme stocks, Bitcoin, journalism, AI, and yeah, the benefits of a true two-hour movie. Maybe even one's a bit less than two hours. Next week, it is your mailbag. Thoughts, ideas, reactions occasioned by this week's podcast. Well, excellent. Do share our email address. 
is rbi at fool.com. You can tweet us, as always, at RBI Podcast on the Twitter. RBI at fool.com is our email address. Have a lovely summer week. Fool on. As always, people on this program may have interest in the stocks they talk about. And The Motley Fool may have formal recommendations for or against. So don't buy or sell stocks based solely on what you hear. Learn more about Rule Breaker Investing at rbi.fool.com.